Professor, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. Very much appreciated. You're very welcome. Pleased to be here. Thank you. Now, I want to begin with your background a bit. Why did you focus your energy, your work on academia uh, rather than more professional work, trial work and the like? Very good question. Um, there are many academics who say they never wanted to be or do anything other than academia and that they would have hated practice. I'm actually not one of those people. I think I would have enjoyed practice in England. If I'd gone into practice, I would have almost certainly gone to the bar, been a barrister. Um, and I think I would have been hopefully reasonably good at it. I quite like arguing on my feet and all that. Why didn't I do it? Well, the bottom line is in England, it's always difficult to run two horses at the same time. It's actually quite difficult to be a serious barrister and a serious academic at the same time. Both of them have become more professionalized, both have become more specialized. Um, so in effect, you have to elect, you have to make a choice. And it wasn't an easy choice, but I decided to pursue an academic career and I've been very happy in that. But I do do um, consultancy work. So I get my, I do some um, serious practical stuff, either doing consultancy work or being an expert witness, things like that. Now, you're a unique person because you've taught both in the UK and the US at some of the brightest colleges, law schools uh, here in the States. What's the biggest difference or set of differences, perhaps, that you've seen in the way uh, folks teach law in Europe as opposed to here in the US? Well, I think there are there are a number of different um, differences. I think two differences which are notable is that one difference is that the audience, your basic American law student, is just older. So they've already done an undergraduate course in whatever subject, liberal arts or any subject, and then they elect to go to law school. So they're already at least... 21, 22, 23, maybe older. Um, whereas in the UK, you begin law at, you can read law at 18 as a major, as your degree, in the same way as you can read history, philosophy, chemistry, physics, or anything else. I think that's probably the most significant difference in terms of the actual way in which the subject is taught. There are other differences. I mean, in a, one of the other, I said that there were two differences. One of the other differences is that I think in the United States, the dominant mode of teaching is still through uh, a sort of a cases and materials book with some form of Socratic dialogue or something analogous there too. Um, that tends to be less common in the UK. The mode of teaching is rather different in the UK. There are casebooks used, but they're not used in quite the same way as they are in the US. Now, one thing I've always admired about the system in England, for example, as you touched upon a second ago, right, legal professionals are uh, divided into barristers and solicitors. Here in the United States, in theory, uh, a 25-year-old kid can graduate law school and, and try a murder case the next day. Um, 
in the UK, there seems to be some prevention of that to some degree. Um, do you see that as well? Do you see that as a benefit or a detriment? I didn't think it. I didn't think it splits quite neatly into just all benefit or all detriment. I think there are pluses and minuses of both uh, ways of proceeding. Um, on the one hand, the plus of the English system is that you, by dividing between barristers and solicitors, you get a cadre of people who are really skilled at trial-type work and who hone their skills in that respect. They're good on their feet. They're good in front of the court. They know how to argue cases. But on the other hand, it seems to me the downside of the UK system is that thereby it also excludes a great number of people, solicitors, for the main part. There are possibilities in some cases for solicitors to present arguments, but it doesn't happen often. But there may be many, you know, I over 40 years in teaching, I've taught many smart people who've gone on to be solicitors who would be perfectly capable of standing up and giving a barrister a good run for his or her money. Um, so that's the kind of downside. But on the other hand, in the American system, um, you end up de facto, if not de jure, with a cadre of people who are trial-type attorneys, you know, um, when Trump wants to be defended in his Miami indictment, he's not going to go to any lawyer. He's going to go to a lawyer with real trial-type experience. Um, and that just hones down, narrows down the cadre of people from whom he's going to choose. The other thing is that, of course, in the UK, even though you have a divided profession, there is nothing per se to stop a 25-year-old barrister trying a murder charge. I mean, if they're chosen by the client, there's nothing to stop that person standing up and trying a really serious criminal case. So uh, I don't think it's all pluses or all minuses for either side. Um, there is, at least on some level, it seems to me, an inconsistency between the free market, right, law schools and the legal profession in general, the ability of a client to choose his own lawyer, which in the U.S. is relatively unfiltered, and limiting competent representation, right? The struggle between those three things seem significant to me. Is that something that you agree with or you see? So, um, we have a somewhat, I mean, we have a free market system in the UK as well. I mean, subject, I mean, the, the bottom line, the default starting point in the United Kingdom is that subject to financial resources, you are able to choose whichever um, law firm you wish to employ to take your case. It's a free market both ways round in the sense that if the law firm doesn't want to take your case for whatever reason, either because it doesn't believe that you have the money or because it believes of one reason or another that this is going to cause reputational damage 
or that it has other clients and that taking your case would not gel well or fit well with its, with its existing client base. It's a free market. It's, a, it's offer and acceptance writ large in the context of lawyer representation. I mean, we do have, I mean, there, having said that, there are some significant differences. Um, so we don't have the same um, fee system in, we don't have a contingent fee system in the way that you do in the States and that does. And again, there are pluses and minuses about contingent fees. We know it. Uh, again, it's not, it's not one of those things. It would be a neat world if everything were all black and white and it's not all black and white. Contingent fees on the one hand enable people to bring cases which they would not otherwise be able to bring because they do not have the financial resources. And in that sense, it's a plus. The, the downside is it can lead to inflated claims because 25% of 10 million is more than 25% of 5 million. Uh, and so it can lead to inflated claims. We don't have, however, a contingent fee system in that sense. How, you know, but again, just to show the kind of swings and roundabouts, pluses and minuses, we have a legal aid regime of a kind that you don't have quite in the States or we don't have it in quite the way we have it. But on the other hand, the problem with the legal aid regime is that it's publicly funded. And if there are pressures on the public purse to uh, put limits on public spending, then what you have is legal aid becomes one of the early casualties in the Treasury tightening purse strings. And that can lead to really serious situations for defendants or plaintiffs who either cannot defend themselves properly or who are unable to bring actions. Now, I'd like to talk to you about two foundational legal concepts that we in the States have taken from the British system, one being the English common law system, right? Our justice system here uh, is based on the English common law system and the idea, of course, of separation of powers. Can you discuss the fundamental importance of those two concepts as they relate to any uh, operation of a justice system? Indeed, um, they're both absolutely central to the UK system and they're both absolutely central to the US system, although the second one plays out in a rather different way in the US than it does in the UK. But just to begin with the common law, I mean, the common law is absolutely foundational. Um, uh, it is a different regime from civil law systems. I mean, continental Europe is based on a Roman law tradition. And although the Roman law tradition a civil law tradition plays out differently in countries like France, Germany, Italy, Spain, etc. There is a commonality in the way in which a civil law regime operates. And there are significant differences from the way in which a common law regime operates. One of the most significant differences is the centrality of case law. Of course, case law is important in civil law traditions. But the Nonetheless, the very idea that case law is creative of doctrine, that case law builds up analogically 
incrementally over time, and that the foundations of any legal subject, public or in public law or private law, are grounded almost always in case law developed by the courts, which is regarded as authoritative, subject to being changed, amended, overruled by Parliament or by Congress, is, I think, absolutely central to the common law system. And I, if I can speak on a personal note in this respect, the, the most recent research project I've just completed is quite a long book on the history of administrative law in England, which traces that history from 1550 onwards. And that history and the development of that law is based almost exclusively, not exclusively, it's based about 80% on what the courts have done and the fashioning of doctrine by the courts. So that's common law. Separation of powers is absolutely central to both regimes. So let me, however, point out both commonalities and differences in separation of powers. I think there's a commonality in separation of powers thinking in terms of the underlying normative impulse, the reason why we regard it as so important, and the fundamental rationale for its importance, which goes back a long way in the UK and in the US, is that it's actually regarded as important principally as a guardian against tyranny. The idea, if you take it from Blackstone or earlier than Blackstone in the 18th century, the idea very much is that if all powers are concentrated in the same hand, if executive, judicial and legislative powers are concentrated in the same hand, then you are on the quick road to tyranny because the legislature will pass laws under the direction of the executive, which will then um, uh, adjudicate on those laws pursuant to courts, which are dominated by the executive as well, and that you end up with a system of tyranny rather than accountability. In that sense, you have a commonality in separation of powers thinking in the US and in the UK, the idea that you're trying to prevent tyranny. On the other hand, the practical workings of separation of powers in the two countries is actually quite different. In the US, you have separation of powers much more embedded in the constitutional system in the US. You have a written constitution which divides executive power in the president, legislative power in the Senate and the House of Representatives, and then the, the judicial power in the courts. And because the president is separate from the legislature, you have a, a classic regime of checks and balances built into the American system, which embodies your separation of powers thinking. By way of contrast, in the UK, we have a parliamentary system where the executive sits is not separate from uh, parliament there is nothing equivalent to a president sitting outside the legislature to the contrary the prime minister and the cabinet are integral to parliament and what that means is that if you have a prime minister and the cabinet 
with a healthy majority, then they can get pretty much anything done that they want. And that that raises concerns about separation of powers. It raises concerns. I mean, one famous uh, aphorism which was coined about the UK system was that it was a system of elective autocracy. That is, sure, people got to vote once every five years or whatever, but in that five-year period, then your elected government held the reins of power and subject to what, as it were, the people in some general sense were willing to accept, there were very few checks and balances on what it could do. So it does actually play out quite differently in the two systems. And, and the fear uh, against tyranny, right, is something that you mentioned. You wrote an article a few years back entitled The Politics of Constitutional Meltdown, where you had essentially implied that at times of war, internal or external, as you wrote, the Constitution, and I presume you meant rights more broadly, uh, are what you called collateral damage, right? It's funny here in the States, we talk a whole lot about free speech in that way that at times of war, fear, uncertainty, the government has wider latitude to shut folks up and violate the precedent, right, that flows from the First Amendment. How big of a fear is that? Do you mean how big of a fear is it in relation to free speech? Or how big of a fear is the erosion of rights when you have constitutional meltdown? Both. Which one? Both. Okay. Well, let me take the erosion of rights in terms of constitutional meltdown. Um, the article was prompted, the, art, the paper is going to appear in an edited book by Mark Tushnet and Dmitry Kochanov, uh, which is going to be called The Politics of Constitutional Law. And I was asked to write a chapter on the politics of constitutional meltdown. Um, and uh, it was a very interesting chapter to write because, as you would be aware from having looked at the chapter, the principal focus of the chapter is on developments in Europe, uh, in certain countries in Europe, but also elsewhere, um, startlingly so. But in Europe, it's exemplified by the situation in Poland and the situation in Hungary, in particular, to lesser extent in Romania. But there are, there are other countries which are problematic, such as Turkey uh, and the like. And the problem here is that what you get, and there's a very sophisticated literature on this, which I draw on, um, where you get what's known in the jargon of the trade as democratic backsliding. And put more specifically, what's so particularly insidious in this respect is that you will get a government elected on a normal franchise, which then uses constitutional mechanisms to alter the constitutional ordering in its favour and to stack the cards in its favour so as to make it much more difficult for it to be unseated in the future. And one of the things which directly impacts on law and rights is that 
one of the techniques which these courts use, which these regimes use, is to undermine the rule of law by undermining the independence of judges. So what are, one of the things we've seen um, uh, alarmingly, both in Hungary and in Poland, are concerted efforts by the regimes in those countries to literally change the personnel in certain of their key courts, such as their constitutional court, and replace the standard bearers of rule of law and judicial independence, the ordinary judiciary, with state-picked appointees who are willing to do the bidding of the state in those circumstances. And that's led to alarming judgments by the Polish Constitutional Court and the Hungarian equivalent. Um, so the uh, democratic backsliding and the attack on judicial independence places rights more generally in jeopardy, including the right to free speech, but not only the right to free speech. It places rights in jeopardy in circumstances where um, the default position should be that if you have a functioning, a properly functioning democracy, there are the normal constraints imposed by a constitution on what the government can do, and that if there is doubt about whether the government has kept within its remit, the individual can go to court and get an honest, objective adjudication about whether the government has infringed rights-based guarantees contained in the constitution. And in a number of these countries, um, that is increasingly more difficult to do because of the inroads into judicial independence which have occurred in these countries. Um, so, uh, um, but then you, what you, moving on to your the second dimension, the dimension more specifically about free speech, what you tend to see, uh, and again, it's a really sophisticated literature in this area, what you see is the bad guys learning from the bad guys. In other words, the, the, the regimes which are likely to engage in constitutional backsliding are smart. They, they have advisors who say, look, hey, country X used this technique. Let's, take, let's not reinvent the wheel. Let's take uh, something out of the playbook of country X and use it in our own country. Um, and one of the uh, standard things which have been used in these circumstances is when very harsh limits are placed on free speech, because free speech is the lifeblood of democracy and it's the lifeblood of critique of the existing government. And so you see, whether it's in Putin's Russia or Erdogan's Turkey, and the, and the limit on free speech is not necessarily a direct limit. Quite often, the form it takes is offences, which, in a sense, say you can speak freely except when you commit an offence. And then you define an offence very, very broadly, which is basically what happens in these countries. No, 
I want to finish up by talking about a Financial Times article that was written in 2020. Uh, the article, and I don't know if you read it, it was entitled, The UK's Constitution is Not Working. And it highlighted three instances to support that thesis. The first being the uh, desire to make the Article 50 notification. The second was the desire to close down Parliament uh, for uh, five weeks. And the third was to take the UK out of the EU. You've written extensively about all of these topics. Is that thesis accurate? It's a lovely question. I mean, let me approach it in this way. Um, countries can either be over-constitutionalized or under-constitutionalized, or they can sit happily on the middle of the spectrum. Um, there are dangers of over-constitutionalization. There are dangers of under-constitutionalization. The dangers of over-constitutionalization are when you when your constitution preempts too many issues and if it preempts too many issues it takes those issues off the agenda of ordinary politics so the domain left to ordinary politics is diminished and that's not particularly healthy either but the uk is very much at the other end of the spectrum we don't have a written constitution and our dominant principle of our unwritten constitution is that parliament is sovereign and can do anything it likes by a simple majority and that there are no substantive or procedural limits on what parliament can do. That is about as radically under-constitutionalized as it can get. Now, the reason why you had that, that Financial Times article written and we, the reason why there's kind of literature about that is that it's fine, you know, the, the UK system is fine, but you're putting all your, as it were, constitutional eggs in one basket, if I can put it that way. You really are trusting Parliament to do the right thing in the right way, okay? So um, the three examples you put on the table all have a commonality. They have a commonality in the sense of when I talk to my my continental colleagues or my common law colleagues in other countries which have a written constitution, I mean, the, you know, one of the recurring themes was, really? I mean, you could do that without, you know, at the click of a finger, as it were. I mean, look, in pretty much any other country, whether we stay in the the EU or not, okay, Fine, you put it to a referendum, you let the people have a vote or whatever. But in pretty much every other country you can think of, without almost any exception, a decision of that magnitude would be subject to a plethora, a variety of constitutional restraints, constraints, limitations, both about how you did it if you wanted to leave and about matters, issues such as well, is the referendum binding if you want to do something of constitutional significance, like leaving the EU? Should you have to have a special majority rather than a simple majority? That kind of thing. Now, the idea that we could have a non-binding referendum, which was then taken by the executive 
as authority to leave the EU without even going to Parliament first, which is the issue about Article 50, was extraordinary um, in terms of over and in terms of under constitutionalization. So um, I am aware of the exigencies of time, but if you're asking me, do I think that our system is under constitutionalized and in that sense could do with some rethink? My view is yes, it could. Well, Professor, I really appreciate your time. Thank you for your effort. It's very much appreciated. You're very welcome. Thank you.